Well, we could not have said it any better. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16, as we all know. John also said it in another way in 1 John chapter 4. By this, the love of God was displayed or manifested in us. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is a time of Christmas that we celebrate and think about and reflect on the great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of God's love displayed toward us. And so when you strip, strip away the, the theme of Santa Claus and you strip away the, 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 maybe the interpersonal conflict with family, the basis of your time in this month in celebration of Christmas is really founded in love. It's founded in the love of Christ, the gift that He is for us and the offering of that gift to the world to believe in Him and be saved. And, and so we celebrate Christ um, in this great gift. Matter of fact, John continues, he says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In that passage in 1 John chapter 4, we literally have Christmas and Easter bound up in one passage. The sending of God's Son and the propitiation or the sacrifice that Christ made upon the cross. It's a beautiful verse uh, to help us think about um, what Christ has come to do and accomplish. And this is the theme that we have been spending time in to think about love. Because as as John says, God sends His only begotten Son in the world so that we might live through Him, so that we might have life. And that life is a transformed life. It's a life that changes us from, from evil and deadness to life and holiness. And so it, it, it enacts or it provides and, and activates in us the ability to love other people. And so this is the, this is the, the power bank, this is the, the resource that you and I need in this season of giving and season of family and season of reflecting upon Christ. For us to love other people, we have to be transformed by Christ to even do such a thing. To love in a proper way. And so this is what Paul has been doing. He's been defining for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the great love chapter, these hearty, deep, foundational truths of God's love that not only He possesses as God, but that He empowers us to, to manifest in the world as Christians. These are some of the ones we have thought about. I was thinking this week how challenging it is to be around your family at Christmas. And I thought, wow, love suffers long. We need that challenge, right? Man, I need to be able to suffer long with kindness during this Christmas season, this hectic time, the hustle and bustle, so on and so forth. And as a believer, not get caught up in the impatience and the anger and the frustration and, and, and the hectic nature, but instead 
display the love of Christ that helps me suffer long. To suffer long with kindness. We talked about God's love being not only one that suffers long and that it puts upon kindness as it suffers long, but it is content. It's not greedy. It's not jealous. In that contentment, it is humble. It shows tact and selflessness in the world around us. Those are the six keys that we've looked at so far or, or distinctions of God's love. We're going to look at three more tonight. Three more in this long, beautiful list given to us by the Apostle Paul. Three challenging and confrontational uh, aspects of God's love that we need to be reminded, not only in this Christmas season, but every day, because we, cha- we are challenged by these. We, are, we struggle with these aspects. And again, it's only by God's grace and His power that we might accomplish them. Let's look at them. Number seven of our list. Number seven is that love is peaceable. Paul tells us that love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Now we've, we've seen that these are all in the negative and I've told you I'm giving to you these to you in the positive and I'm giving it to you in an action verb because love is an action. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. And so to say that love is not provoked is to say that we are called to be peaceable. The word provoked there means that you are not provoked to wrath or anger. He's reminding believers that divine love that is possessed in a believer is one that is not quick to anger and and temperament. We understand that there is a distinction in the Bible that we need to make clear, that I need to make clear tonight, and that is that there is a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger. And the Greek, the Greek word orge, which is used um, throughout the Bible, actually refers to both the wrath of God, which is a righteous, holy anger, and the unrighteous wrath of humans, which is stirred up in us, brings to a, comes to a boil within us for the selfish reasons that they do. We're going to look at both of those briefly. First, let's think about righteous anger. How we can be angry in a righteous way and not be guilty of sin. Remember with us that Jesus displayed this righteous anger as He goes into the temple. He He displays this anger in a way as He sees the worship of God that's supposed to be contained in the temple in Jerusalem. Now it's being abused by the people. This beautiful place of worship had been turned into a place of commerce. The leaders of the temple, these religious leaders, had literally gone to become, uh, they had uh, begun to exploit the people in making money and gaining a quick buck so that they could uh, line their pockets in a greedy way. And of course, this angered the Lord Jesus, right? Because it replaced the worship of God with the greed of human hearts. And so he begins to overturn the tables and display for us a righteous anger. When you're angry with sin, whether that be your own sin or the sin of others in this world, you're standing in righteous anger. This righteous anger is an example of how the Spirit has transformed your heart. 
You're not interested in righteous anger before. You are completely accepting of sin. You're accepting of evil before Christ transforms you. There is no struggle there. It is a delight to you. It is, it's savory in your lives to sin, to give yourself over to the gratification of your flesh. But when the Spirit transforms you, all of a sudden your sin is grotesque and sin in the world as a whole is disgusting because the holiness of God is offended. But there's also unrighteous anger. This is the anger that Paul is discussing and talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a a demonstration of love that is not led to being quick-tempered or provoked to wrath. It's a selfish wrath. Jonathan Edwards comments that a Christian spirit is opposite to all undue or unsuitable anger. In his book, Charity and Its Fruits, he goes on to explain that unsuitable anger for the Christian focuses on ill will and a desire for revenge toward others. You could say that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day had ill will, had anger, were stirred up in wrath, so much so that they wanted to kill the Lord Jesus. And they did. This is an example that they lacked true godly love. It's an ill will toward others. It goes in connection to the first point, which is the long-suffering, the putting uh, a a wet blanket, quenching the very uh, emotional upheaval in in our minds and our hearts when we are disturbed in some way. So long-suffering leads, in a sense, to suppressing anger. But Edward says that when a Christian is fallen into anger, he is seeking out ill will toward others. He also says that uh, we can have an unsuitable anger in such a way that it's a trivial anger. Meaning that it's a frustration or an irritability, a grumpiness, as we might say, toward trivial or meaningless circumstances or acts that we should overlook as a believer. So not only is it ill will toward others, but it's just a simple grumpiness and irritability toward things that we as believers are called to overlook offenses. We might experience these acts of foolishness or ignorance by others that, are, that that's, these acts are done to us or merely just observed in the world. We might see these in, in line at a cash register or encountering a situation at work or uh, interacting with your spouse or children or family. Christian love casts out irritability and grumpiness, and anger because it is overlooking offenses. It is peaceable. If you hold your place in 1 Corinthians, go over to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gives an example for us about being peaceable, about putting aside anger. This is a well-known passage in the Beatitudes. Jesus says in Matthew 5.22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry, same word, angry with his brothers 
or brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now you know that Jesus is addressing the topic of murder in the religious leaders' minds because they are so quick to stand on certain letters of the law and not deal with the internal issues behind them. So they had laws against murder, but Jesus is saying, no, no, let's reconsider murder because it starts with this orge, this anger. Anger toward our brothers. And so He's dealing with the heart issue behind murder. It starts with this inward ill will and hatred for one another. And Jesus points out that it leads from simply just an internal uh, flame that's about us to a verbal abuse where we begin to call people names like, you good for nothing, you fool. Elevating the, the, the depth of sin in these situations. And that's included if we are so angry or irritable in our mind, we're like, what an idiot in our brain, or we actually say that out loud. And Jesus is condemning such an anger in the life of a believer because it does not reflect the kingdom of God and His attributes. And so the positive aspect of this characteristic is to live peaceable. An anger-free love displays and seeks out peace with others. Internal peace and external peace. Jesus tells us in these Beatitudes, blessed are what? The peacemakers. To live in such a way that we declare and wave the banner of peace. Why? Because Christ has come into the world and brought about divine peace for us between us and God. We are peacemakers because He has provided a way for us to be reconciled back to God through the death of His Son. And therefore, we who were once enemies have now experienced peace through Christ. So then, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us the application. So instead of anger, church... He calls us to live peaceable. And here's His example in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 23 and 24. He's saying, put off anger and instead deal with conflict in your life in a peaceable way. Therefore, He says, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, not you have something against your brother, Your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus is demonstrating for us that peace within interpersonal conflicts is a priority to the sacrifice that was required at the temple because without peace, we are not truly reflecting a heart of worship at the temple itself. If we are living in in broken conflict, in disjointed conflict with one another, and we are going to the altar to offer uh, praise and worship to a God who brings about peace, we are hypocrites. Because we don't truly understand peace. And so this calls us to be peacemakers. 
Jesus is teaching us that we must seek out peace and reconciliation between brothers and sisters. These irreconcilable differences between two people should be our priority if possible. Now listen, reconciliation is not always possible if both parties are not desiring to be reconciled. And yet Jesus makes clear that as Christians, we are seeking that peace. If you're not seeking it and just assuming there'll never be peace, then you are living in disobedience. But if you are seeking it out and hitting a roadblock after a roadblock, then your hands are clean and you have done what your responsibilities are as a true Christ follower displaying the love of God that seeks peace. This calls us to consider those relationships then in our lives that are at odds. Whether believers or unbelievers, we are to reflect a a, a peacemaking life with them or we are reflecting an anger and ill will towards them. And we need to be careful. And I appreciate Jonathan Edwards again in his book because he clarifies that righteous anger is not when we are more concerned with the offenses against us more than the offenses against the holy God. We could say, oh, I am so upset that this has happened to me because of this sinful thing that's happened. But friend, let me ask you, why are you so upset? Are you upset because you have been offended or because the holy God and Creator has been offended? Our priority as believers is above all to seek the glory of God. To be frustrated and to be angry when His glory is is defamed. When His glory is smeared. When His holiness is mocked. It's not about our offenses. And we should seek and be people of peace because Christ has provided this peace for us. And in the same way, we should rightly be angry at the atrocities and the violations against God and His good Word on a day-by-day basis. We should not also live as Christians apathetic to the violations against God and His good Word. We should be angry at false teaching and false religion. Not in anger that leads us to violence or hate or any unholy act, but instead to stand firm upon what God teaches, not back down from those things, and be stirred to to anger and wrath, pleading with God to bring about His judgment in His own timing and plans, as the psalmist did throughout the Old Testament. So God has called us through the Apostle Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit to be peaceable. And in connection with that, number eight is to be forgiving. The very act of being peaceable in a relationship whereby you are offended is to be forgiving. Remember, Jesus says, when someone has offended you, you put your sacrifice down and go be peaceable and seek reconciliation. But what happens when you are offended? 
When you are the one offended, when the wrong has been done to you, when the violation has happened to you, as a believer, you are called to forgive. You are called to forgive. And and Paul, in my opinion, gives the strongest word back in 1 Corinthians 13 to define forgiveness for us. He uses accounting terms. He says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. A love does not calculate evil. It does not keep a tally of personal conflicts that have violated you. We don't do that. We do not keep the record of wrongs. We are not conflict accountants. This does not mean that you force yourself to forget these wrongs because our memories will always allow us to possess such historical information. But to not record the wrongs means that the Christian out of love will not continue to think on, dwell on, replay, or bring back up offenses internally or externally toward those offenders. I read a story of a married couple that was constantly in conflict. They went to their pastor and the lady said, Pastor, every time my husband and I fight, he gets historical. And the pastor said, you mean hysterical? And she goes, no, he's historical. He's constantly bringing up the past. He's constantly reminding me of all my failures and all my, my, my shortcomings. And church, the church, the, 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 The doctrine of forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone reminds us that forgiveness is not keeping a record of wrongs. It's different than reconciliation because forgiveness can be one-sided while reconciliation requires both parties to agree to peace. Forgiveness is spelled out on a divine level in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Namely, Paul says, God was in Christ, reconciled the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He committed to us the word of reconciliation. So here we have the display of what forgiveness is. Reconciliation and peace being brought about by the forgiveness in Christ. How did God bring about forgiveness? Through the sole act of Christ alone. And that forgiveness is being described on a spiritual level as not counting trespasses against us. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that that God ignores our sin? No, what Paul is talking about is that reconciliation comes through forgiveness that was accomplished in Christ when He became the substitute for the sin debt that we've occurred. All of it was laid upon Jesus. It's not swept under the rug. Jesus bears the weight of our sin of debt. And He puts it upon Himself, and He places upon believers His own righteousness so that God looks upon us as holy in His sight. And He doesn't count those trespasses against us because the Bible tells us He remembers them no more. He's dealt with them on a judicial level. And on a personal level, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 31 that He remembers them no more. Not counting them with us. 
David Garland writes that God wiped clean the register of transgressions through Christ's death. The files containing the records of our shortcomings and offenses have been deleted so that God remembers them no more. Saul is no longer a murderer in the eyes of God because of Jesus. You are no longer an idolater. You are no longer given in to sexual gratification or anger or gossip. You are no longer these things because of Christ and what He has accomplished. So then, church, you must, out of a love for God and a transformed life in Him, forgive as He has forgiven you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And listen, you don't forgive only when the offender has asked for forgiveness. Now, in our family, we teach our children to not just apologize, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry I called you an idiot, whatever, but to ask for forgiveness. We now... When you ask for forgiveness in this relationship with one another, you are now putting the responsibility on the other believer to answer and apply obedience in that situation. If you just go, hey, listen, I'm sorry I should have done that, you have now shifted no responsibility to the other believer to be faithful as well. But when you say, will you forgive me? They now are responsible to apply Ephesians 4.32 or 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, which says, love keeps no record of wrongs. But what about people that, that will never ask for forgiveness? If forgiveness is only applied to those who ask for it, that would mean that God will allow us to walk around day by day with unforgiveness in our heart. Justified unforgiveness. That's not true, church. We may walk around throughout our lives without reconciliation between some relationships, but forgiveness is one-sided. It can always be applied, not because someone has asked for it, but because Jesus Christ has displayed what forgiveness is like, how it is attained by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so you can have it. You can have it. You're like, you don't understand what's happened to me. You don't understand the situation that I am in. Peter had a very similar question in the Gospels where he comes to Jesus and he asks a question, Jesus, how much should we forgive? And he gives a a great parable about this very thing. When we think in our minds, Pastor, you don't understand what I've done or you don't understand what someone's done for me, it's hard for me to forgive that person. And Jesus' parable in the Gospels remind us that it's not, about, it's not about the level or the amount of violation against us in comparison to the violation that we have offended or gone against a holy God. It's incomparable. And so Jesus' parable reminds Peter and the disciples... 
In the unmerciful servant, there's a, there's a master and he has a slave and the slave is begging for mercy to, be, to have his debts forgiven. And the master shows compassion on him and he forgives his debts. And then that slave goes out into the society and he finds someone that owes him money and shows no mercy. And in Matthew chapter 18, in this very definitive statement in this parable, this is what Jesus says. By the words of this master, should you not also have mercy, or we can apply forgiveness, on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Innumerable violation? Absolutely not. It's not innumerable in our personal conflict. It is innumerable in our violation against the Holy God. And therefore we forgive. But let me just say also, church, that not only should we forgive even when people don't ask for it, but remember that forgiveness can come even when people, we believe people don't deserve it. Most likely they don't deserve forgiveness in certain circumstances. Horrible situations where a person has made their shortcomings, they've not made up for their shortcomings or reversed any effects of damage and hurt and pain toward us. There's this emotional debt that this person can never pay. And yet again, to not keep a record of wrongs in Christian love is to choose to act in forgiveness based solely on the merit and work of Christ who provides forgiveness for us. Therefore, who are we to keep records of wrongs when God does not? Ken Sandy writes, Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's an act of will. Forgiveness involves a series of decisions, the first of which is a call on God to change our hearts. As He gives us grace, we must then decide with our will not to think or talk about that which someone has done to hurt us. God calls us to make these decisions regardless of our feelings. So therefore, we are peacemakers and we forgive. We forgive those who ask for forgiveness. We forgive those who don't. We forgive those who hate us. We forgive those who just violated or offended us. We forgive those who take our most precious possessions away because we are compelled by the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ. And let me just say as a final statement that forgiveness does not mean restored relationships. Forgiveness means not keeping a record of wrongs, but it does not mean that the relationship is restored to its original state. Abusers can be forgiven and not restored to the original state of relationship. For safety reasons, this is not acceptable. Death brings separation in relationships, and yet the opportunity to forgive extends even after death of a loved one or an offender. I mean, think about the thief on the cross. At the last moment of his life, the thief experienced forgiveness in Christ and he placed his trust in the Lord. The Lord Jesus confirmed this by saying, today you will be with me in paradise. But what about those he offended? What about those he stole from? 
He was never reconciled to these people. Let's hypothetically say these people were God-fearers. They worshipped God. They followed the books of the law and Moses and they were seeking out forgiveness. Hypothetically, let's say that even though the thief dies on the cross, never uh, reconciling that relationship, never paying back debts, never even apologizing, hanging from the cross, a God-fearer could still forgive even after death. And I know some of us in here are holding on to bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. And when that loved one dies, we think that our, we're free from that type of shackle or pain. We're walking around with bitterness in our lives thinking that death has freed us. And that's not true. You're not free. Forgive because it's one-sided. Forgive because it's reflected in Christ. And He will empower you to live in such a way that you can not count the record of wrongs, but give grace toward them. Lastly, and I'll be done. In verse 6, Paul says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Very simply, love champions holiness. It makes holiness its key, its, its motivation. We as believers in Jesus are so stirred up by divine love within us. We are so transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that Paul gives us two sides of the same coin. In our transformed state, the love of God manifested in us hates evil and rejoices in truth. This is a reflection of a heart changed by God. Followers of Jesus who have been transformed cannot and should not celebrate evil and sin. Your transformation and the fact that you are now, as the Bible says in in 1 Corinthians, the temple of the Holy Spirit, it immediately creates a conflict. Paul even says this, How can you be a temple of the Holy Spirit and wed or connected to a prostitute? That's Paul's argument in the sexual sin in Corinth. How can you call yourself a Christian and live in evil? Well, let's take a step back and go, how can you call yourself a Christian and celebrate evil? How can we call ourselves Christians and rejoice in things that dishonor and anger a holy God? Be reminded that Paul, throughout his letters in the New Testament, and the letters of the Old Testament uh, by the prophets and the patriarchs, remind us that walking in holiness is walking in obedience in the law of God. And the New Testament reminds us that we once were people of the world, trapped in sin, and now we've been changed. And Paul continually in his letters remind us of this former life to to show us, to highlight that we've been changed in regeneration. And we're now different. And we want different things because Christ has birthed in us a desire for new things. We're We're alive in Christ. So therefore we oppose evil. We go to war against the devil and his schemes. We fight against the lusts of the flesh and the mind with self-control. We're now children of peace, not children of wrath. 
And that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians. Love demands that we seek holiness. We champion it because it reflects the heart of God. We don't, we don't try to toe the line or ride the fence of, of, a, of an evil world and, and, a, and a godly church so that we can appeal to the masses. We stand firm and say, this truth that we believe in, it divides us. It's an offense to an ungodly world. And for us to celebrate evil goes against what God has called us to believe in. It goes against His own power manifested in us. Proverbs chapter 14 tells us that fools mock at sin. If you've read through the Proverbs, you'll be reminded that the Proverbs are kind of divided up into the fool and the wise for the most part. You also have the simple and the scoffer. But generally, the foolish and the wise. And the fool, the writer says, mocks at sin. But among the upright, there is goodwill. There's the distinction. The psalmist David writes in Psalm 119, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Now, David was always reflective of his own sin, but here David is saying in Psalm 119 that he is weeping over the fact that the law of God in general is not kept. That it's offended. And so the very offenses against God bring us to our knees It reminds us of the Lord Jesus walking uh, on the mountain, approaching Jerusalem and, and stopping and weeping. And He's weeping because of the state of Jerusalem. He's weeping because He knows of their rejection of Him that's coming. He's weeping because of the great destruction that will come to His people because they would reject Him and they would not believe in His name. And so Paul tells us that for us to display divine love is literally to display the love of God in us that hates evil and rejoices in truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And to be changed by Jesus in His death and resurrection is to champion His truth. You know, when you become a Christian, whether you're as a a young person or an adult... There's transformation in your desire and your love for the Word of God. As a child, it grows faintly and then deeper and deeper. As an adult, sometimes it's just a radical change, a radical switch. But I want you to listen to Psalm 119, verses 129 and 30. He says, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now, I want you to be reminded of something. The world, Paul has already told us, does not think the testimonies of the Lord are wonderful. They are not amazed. They are not full of wonder about anything that God has said. Let's not lie to ourselves. They are offended by the testimonies of God. It irritates them. It's sandpaper. It's nails against a chalkboard. They don't want to hear it. It offends them. And even Paul tells us in Romans 1, they suppress it. Because it's truth. 
So then how could the psalmist write, your testimonies are wonderful? Because he's been changed. Because he has literally, uh, with, with all the power of God within him, he has been so transformed that the testimonies become wonderful. They are light as God unfolds the words. They are understanding. They, they, they awaken the, he awakens the mind so that we can see them and cherish them. So that as the deer longs for the water, the stream of water to drink, so my heart, the psalmist says, longs for you. We long for the Word of God and the nourishment and the truth that it gives us. Love suffers long with kindness. Love is content and humble, tactful, selfless, peaceable, forgiving, one who champions holiness and the glory of God. Church, these are challenging words for us because none of us do this perfectly. None of us live this way perfectly. God's not calling you to live perfectly. God's calling you to trust in the perfect work of Christ in you to do this. So you can forgive. You can be at peace. You can live selflessly. You can live humbly and contently for God's glory and His holiness. Rest in Him. And if you're trying to do these things on your own, you're a severed tree laying sideways on the ground trying to bear fruit. Your roots are exposed. There's no way you have connected to the life source of this earth, and yet you are trying to spout fruit. And the Bible says you are dead because you are without Christ. No fruit will come. You may try to imitate your, those things, but trust in Christ, believe in His finished work upon the cross, and He will bring about true transformation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You.